1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of intriguing and knowledgeable people. Baylor University musicologist Robin Wallace has been under the influence of Beethoven for almost as long as he can remember. A lifelong love affair that began when he discovered the late string quartets as a teenager, and continued in his professional career as an expert in both Beethoven's music and the critical reception of his musical ideas. So when a personal tragedy struck and his wife became suddenly deaf, It was perhaps not surprising that one way he eventually tried to grapple with the situation was to imagine how his wife's experiences might have in some ways paralleled those of his musical hero, resulting in his innovative, deeply moving, and often refreshingly myth-busting book, Hearing Beethoven. These days, Robin is turning his focus on exploring just what it is that makes Beethoven's music so remarkably influential and long-lasting taking issue with Leonard Bernstein's famous explanation and once again treading out on his own highly personal and deeply engaging path. I thought we'd begin by talking about your beginnings. In particular, your interest in not even so much Beethoven to start with, although obviously I'd like to get there, but I'd really like to talk about your interest in music writ large and how that began for you.
0: Well, I I come from a fairly musical family. I've had uh, uh, relatives who, on both sides, who played the piano and studied music. I uh, uh, picked up the piano at about age seven. I got some lessons from my mother and uh, then started formal lessons a few years later when I was 10. Uh, And uh, uh, when uh, I got to high school, I spent a couple of summers at music camps. particularly went to the Suwanee Summer Music Center at uh, the University of the South in Tennessee, uh, near where I grew up. By the way, I was a, a laboratory brat. My father worked at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Oh, um, really? Most of the uh, adult males that I knew there at least were uh, uh, had PhDs, were biologists, chemists, physicists. I think I'd, I knew from... Uh, about first grade on that uh, I would be in school until I was in my late 20s and had a PhD that was simply (laughs) what people in my family did. Uh, And uh, I also happened to have a great uncle, Charles Hughes, who was a musicologist. So from a relatively early age, I was aware of the idea that one thing you could get a PhD in if you didn't want to go the science track was musicology. So uh, i uh, uh, unlike a lot of people, I guess in my field, I started thinking about that option fairly early
1: that's interesting just just to interject for a minute. in my experience, there's quite a statistically large correlation with people, at least in the mathematical sciences and music. Very, very many people who are mathematicians or physicists have an affinity to music, play music themselves, particularly uh, classical music. Did you find that yourself with your with your father and his colleagues at Oak Ridge. Was there a statistically significant number of people who were musically inclined there as well?
0: Absolutely. there were uh, the, the Oak Ridge Symphony Orchestra was a, a strictly amateur group, but uh, a lot of the people who played in it were scientists and, and uh, pursued music as a hobby. Um, I happened uh, in Oak Ridge High School. I, I don't think I realized until I got to college how good the schools in Oak Ridge were for public schools. But uh, I had a a math teacher, uh, Benita Albert, who uh, was absolutely outstanding. She was at the beginning of her career then, but really got me hooked on math. She later became a kind of national teacher of the year. Uh, So uh, my first year and a half in college, I uh, double majored in math and music. uh, Oh, uh, interesting then I guess realized I wasn't really interested in math to, enough to pursue it beyond multivariate calculus. So I dropped the the math major at that point. But, okay, uh, well, yes, we can I, drop
1: I, the math now and get, get back to your music.
0: I, I absolutely see that connection, yes. Uh, but uh, uh, to pick the story up, it was uh, really at uh, Suwanee that I, I first experienced the uh, excitement of, of seeing People my own age doing live musical performance. That first summer that I was there, they had uh, uh, Lewis Lane, one of the uh, conductors of the Cleveland Orchestra, came down for a week and and uh, led the the student orchestra in uh, Mahler's First Symphony, which I'd never heard before. I hadn't actually heard anything by Mahler, but I was just blown away by it. And uh, that year, I. I Acquired as many recordings of Mahler as I could, and and uh, listened to them, and then also uh, started uh, branching out as a as a pianist. Uh, uh, one of the things I realized uh, when I was at Suwane was I was not very good at sight reading, so I decided to train myself to be better, and and uh, I just played through first a lot of Mozart sonatas and forced myself not to stop if I made a mistake, and. Uh, When I got more confident with Mozart, I started doing that with Beethoven sonatas. Um, And uh, then I got the uh, Arthur Schnabel recordings of all the Beethoven sonatas. Uh, You know, I was a nerdy high school kid with no social life, so I spent a lot of time listening to uh, uh, these recordings and uh, uh, then uh, discovered the string quartets. Um, And uh, this this really was the revelation for me because... uh, uh, the the, uh, the the late string quartets and the late piano sonatas sort of had this reputation for being thick and impenetrable and hard to understand. And I just from the very first time I heard that music, it just grabbed me as as, as being you know unlike anything else I'd ever heard, just incredibly uh, meaningful and and profound. I couldn't have begun to articulate really why. At that point in my life, but uh, you know, age fifteen, I was hooked on late Beethoven string quartets.
1: And you mentioned in in the foreword to uh, your first book, Beethoven's Critics. You mentioned that your piano teacher actually gave you uh, a copy of the scores of the string quartets, which struck me as an uh, as an odd thing to be doing for a piano teacher. So uh, first of all, is that perhaps I'm misremembering, but that's, that's, that's my recollection that you were actually introduced to the string quartets from, uh, by your piano teacher. Uh, is no, that, that's, is that's that correct? And is it, that's odd. That's an odd thing to be doing, I would have thought.
0: That, that is correct. I don't think that she necessarily introduced me to them, but when I told her that I was listening to Beethoven string quartets, uh, she went out and, and bought me the Dover edition of the, the, the quartets. And, and uh, from that point on, when I listened to them, I would generally have the score in front of me. So I, I became familiar with them visually uh, as well as uh, uh, orally. And, and uh, uh, that actually became important uh, many years later, when I wrote hearing Beethoven and started looking into the the visual dimensions of Beethoven's writing, I always had the sense of what it looked like before me too.
1: Right, and, and did you ever think at the time? Uh, I mean, I realize you were you were fifteen, which is, uh, I guess, roughly the equivalent of eighty five in music years. But uh, <laughs> uh, what uh, did you think at that point? Gosh, I'd like to play a string instrument as well. Were you ever tempted into going in that particular direction or not so much? Was it just appreciating the string quartets and string music? Uh, I was
0: tempted. I I looked at various points into taking up another instrument, and uh, I think I just eventually decided that uh, uh, I would prefer to focus on piano and keep going with that. Um, And piano really is a great instrument to play if you like Beethoven. uh, The piano sonatas are at the center of his output.
1: Did you have aspirations of being a, a performance musician when you were younger? Is that the sort of thing, if I, if I could go back in time and, and ask the 13 or 14-year-old Robin, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? What, uh, you, you mentioned the awareness of, of a professional academic career from an early mm-hmm. age, but would, would he have said, oh, I'd love to be a, a professional musician or I want to be a musicologist, or what, what might he have said?
0: Well, I'm not sure at 15 I really had a sense of what a musicologist did, Uh, but uh, another part of this was that I really wanted to be a teacher all the way through school. uh, When I was in junior high, I wanted to be a junior high school teacher because I thought I understood what junior high kids went through. Uh, When I was in high school, I wanted to be a high school teacher. When I was in college, I realized I really wanted to teach college, and that's where it sort of stayed. Uh, so, you know, the, the options, uh, obviously, there are only a very small handful of people in the world who can make a living as a professional musician. Most people uh, ultimately end up teaching. And uh, I was, I think, always more interested in teaching in the classroom than in a private studio. So uh, I never really considered uh, going into piano as a profession. Uh, I uh, went to college at Oberlin, which uh, uh, has a famous conservatory, uh, but uh, I actually went to the liberal arts college and majored in music, which uh, opened up some options that uh, uh, maybe closed other options. It was clear I wasn't going to be a performer from the beginning of that, but uh, I took full advantage of everything that was there. Um, and also did my first teaching there since they didn't have graduate students.
1: And you talked about becoming a better sight reader and going from the Mozart sonatas to the Beethoven sonatas. In terms of your introduction to Beethoven and becoming increasingly transfixed by Beethoven, when did that love affair really start for you? Was it was it at that point as you were developing your sight reading skills from an early age, was it listening to recordings? Was it working on, uh, on other pieces? Was it also being involved in, in listening to uh, larger scale orchestral work, symphonies and, and, and the like, or a combination of that? How did, was there a time when you could say, yes, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly excited by and focused on the work of Beethoven, or was it more of a gradual sort of situation? it was all of the
0: things that you just mentioned um, but uh, you know I would say that point by the time I graduated from high school uh, I probably would have said Beethoven was my favorite composer um, it's uh, uh, I, I I don't mean to sound exclusive that way. It's not like, OK, I now like Beethoven and I don't like Mahler anymore or I don't like Debussy. No, I still I still liked all those people. And, and I also listened to The the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and plenty of other stuff uh, uh, at that point. But, uh, uh, but Beethoven uh, really came to the top of my list before I reached college and stayed there.
1: Yeah. You mentioned going to Oberlin chart out a little bit more, if you will, your your academic career, your interests, your growing areas of specialization, as you became increasingly aware of what a musicologist was and acknowledged that that's the sort of thing that you would eventually become yourself?
0: Well, uh, my freshman year, I uh, went to the uh, music history professor who taught the class on music before sixteen hundred. Uh, and uh, I told him I'm a I, I'm a student in the college, but I'm majoring in music. I want permission to take your class, uh, even though I don't have any background in this music. And he said, "Don't worry, nobody has background in music before 1600." Uh, but uh, then I told him, "Well, you know, I want to take all these music history courses because I would like to go to graduate school uh, and uh, and major in music history and get a get a PhD and uh, become a, a music historian or a musicologist, and he said, "Well, it's the same thing." Uh, but uh, let me let me tell you something. Sit down. Um, actually I was probably sitting down already, but you know, effectively, he said, uh, uh, I, "I hope this doesn't ruin your day." But uh, there is probably no field in the world in which it is harder to get a job than musicology, music history, uh, you know, different the, the, the terms are functionally equivalent at, at this point, since music theory and ethnomusicology have now become separate fields. Uh, so, you know, he basically told me about his own experience. He said, uh, you know, you can you can go to a top program, but that's no guarantee you get a job. There were four jobs available in the whole country last year. You know, if I were you, I would think about something else to do with your life. Hope I didn't ruin your day. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And And your uh, response to that was was what? My response to that was, oh my, uh, I will have to think about this a bit, but uh, uh, I did stick with it. Um, And uh, now uh, whenever I have a student, come and tell me that they're interested in doing further work in music history, I essentially give them the same speech. Uh, In fact, I sometimes will call it the apples on a street corner speech, because I will say, do do you want to do this so badly that if you end up, the only job you can get is selling apples on a street corner, would it still be worth it to you to have gotten a phd in musicology because i've learned that if somebody can hear that question and they still want to do it you know then that's the kind of person that you want to have go on in the in the field and i'm hoping that what's the, the way
1: average it. response rate just out of curiosity when you give that speech <laughs> what, what percentage on average of people Decide that they're willing to sell apples on a corner.
0: Oh, that's a good question. I overall, surprisingly many because by the time somebody gets to the point of of telling me that they would like to go on in music history, they're usually at a pretty advanced point in their career. They've decided that other options won't work for them. Uh, you know, they may already be pursuing a master's degree. so, uh, I would say over the years, probably at least half of the people that I've given that speech to have, in fact, gone on in the field. Uh, some have ended up gotten PhDs, uh, getting PhDs. Some are uh, currently teaching college. In fact, uh, uh, now that uh, uh, I'm on Facebook and have connected with a lot of former students, I'm sometimes surprised by just how many people I used to teach are, uh, are teaching a music history course somewhere.
1: So undeterred, you moved on to uh, do a doctorate, and you you went to Yale, correct?
0: Yes, for my master's and PhD.
1: And then you you specialized in the work of Beethoven uh, or the reception of Beethoven. I, I I understand for your for your doctorate. And I wonder about that too, because I don't pretend to know anything about the world of professional academic. Uh, musicianship, musicology, history of music, or anything like that. But I can imagine that becoming a specialist in the work of an individual as renowned and as overwhelmingly significant and important as Beethoven would represent a, an even greater challenge. If one wants to be tactical in many academic disciplines, one picks a very small, narrow mm-hmm unrecognized specialty that one can become the world unequivocally the world's greatest expert in and that might increase the chances of one getting a job because one can say oh i'm the i'm the world leading the undisputed world leading expert in such and such and so and so but not only deciding to become a professional musicologist but also specializing in beethoven seems like you're deeply increasing the likelihood of selling apples on a, on, a, on a corner is that is that a fair assessment or is it not like that?
0: Well, there are, there are a couple of different pieces to that. Uh, first of all, this sounds strange now, but in the late nineteen seventies, uh, even majoring in anything from the nineteenth century in PhD studies, at least at Yale. Uh, was uh, kind of going out on the wild side because most musicologists at that point were still working on early music and, uh, you know music from before the standard repertory uh, really? and uh, even some of the best-known Beethoven specialists uh, of the past generation or so started out uh, doing their dissertation work on something from the Renaissance or, or earlier and then branched into Beethoven later on I think uh, for example, Lewis Lockwood, who is probably the most eminent living Beethoven scholar in the country, uh, who got into Beethoven as a, a sort of second thread after having done a, a, a Renaissance dissertation in, uh, uh, in graduate school. Uh, so even just the idea of uh, getting into a 19th century topic was uh, kind of uh, risky at that point. Uh, but there's there's another thread uh, to, to my background, which is that uh, when I was in college, I, I began to write for the student paper at Oberlin. I eventually became one of the managing editors of the paper. Uh, I wrote music reviews. I edited reviews by others. I became very interested in music journalism. And, and in fact, I, I seriously thought at one point that I might uh, want to... Uh, uh, become a music critic to per, uh, pick a career that perhaps is even more impractical than being a, a musicologist. <laughs> um, and uh, so it wasn't just that I was choosing to study Beethoven, I was also studying to choose to, uh, choosing to study the uh, history of music criticism. Uh, and uh, that actually turned out to be a surprisingly prescient, thing to do, because in the decades since then, the uh, whole field of musicology has taken a distinctly critical turn, which was really only just beginning at the the time I was in graduate school. Um, And uh, so uh, becoming uh, an authority on at least one segment of the history of music criticism uh, kind of put me in at the ground floor of some other things that that would become interesting in the field later on.
1: And there are some obvious practical questions. So if one is studying the reception of Beethoven in critical reviews, one has to obviously become very competent in German uh, and in French and perhaps even in other languages. Was that an additional challenge for you? Did you have any other background linguistically? How did you go about doing that?
0: Uh, I had had French all the way through school. I uh, happened to spend third grade in Canada where everybody learns French. And so I I, uh, got kind of a a kickstart because they'd all started already. And uh, uh, so I was nearly fluent in French by the time I got to college. I realized, though, pretty early on that German was the language I would have to learn. Um, And so I took uh, an intensive German course and then uh, spent a summer in Vienna uh, and uh, uh by the time that was done i think i i i think it's fair to say I was fluent in german that it, i uh, since then i've spent so much time reading and translating uh things in uh, in German including uh early nineteenth century German but I rarely get a chance to speak it so i it, it's funny because i've done so much work in German but i wouldn't say i'm fluent now because i don't have much opportunity to actually use the language. If I were to go back over there and spend a significant amount of time, it would come back very quickly. Uh, but uh, yes, you're right that that uh, I, I needed to know uh, certainly both French and German. And uh, to uh, get the PhD, I had to also pass a third language exam in Italian, uh, which uh, I certainly don't know nearly as well as either French or German. But uh, what I, I did to pass that one was uh, pick up a an Italian grammar book uh, discovered that Italian grammar is almost identical to French grammar. And uh, I started reading things and looking up every word I didn't know, and, and I got enough Italian that way to pass the test. That's that's kind of gone by the wayside since.
1: And, and when you speak uh, German, do you, and I, I appreciate that you don't speak all that often, it's mostly reading and so forth, but when you speak, I'm guessing you have an Austrian accent when you speak, because that can be somewhat problematic to people in Germany, uh, even with native Austrian speakers. Mm -hmm. Have have you noticed uh, that's not not so much of an issue? Uh, Well, I've noticed uh, uh,
0: when I was back in Vienna recently that uh, people seem to be pronouncing German correctly, so uh, I guess I do have an Austrian accent. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, you're right that, that, uh, you know, of course, uh, there are all kinds of different dialects and, and versions of german and, and uh, uh, that poses a an additional problem for the non-native speaker because uh, uh, people will often speak in their dialect rather than in the the, the school German that they all have uh, and that, uh, you know they're, they're talking to a foreigner they'll presumably be on good manners about that
1: right. um, you mentioned music journalism and I want to go back to larger scale issues about the role of the critic and so forth. But there's a specific question that I would like the answer to that I didn't see addressed. Perhaps I didn't read it as carefully as I should have. There's a famous review by E.T.A. Hoffman of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that a lot in your book and lots of people talk about that. And that's perhaps one of the most famous pieces of music journalism, even, uh, a non-specialist like myself has heard of that, mm-hmm. but what I what I haven't heard of is what Beethoven's reaction was to that review. Um, so, what was that? Just out of curiosity, what did what did he think about that? You you talk a little bit in Beethoven's critics about in the very beginning Beethoven pushing back and and mm-hmm. and effectively changing some of the editorial policy, as it were, or the, or the journalistic policy of.
0: The argument uh, and Mr.
1: the Leipzig journal, but I didn't get a sense. I've often wondered what he actually thought of the Hoffman, this the celebrated Hoffman review. So, can you tell me a little bit about that, just to satisfy my curiosity? Do we have any knowledge of of what he actually thought?
0: Well, we we don't really know. Uh, I mean, I would tend to assume since Beethoven did read that journal, and it was the same journal that that Hoffman was published in that. Uh, uh, that he probably at least looked in those reviews. There, there's some uh, some correspondence from him in which he asked for more information about Hoffmann and, and was told that uh, you know, Hoffmann was also a composer. That operas by him were being performed in Berlin, and that might have, have stimulated his interest. Uh, but I, I but that's about all we really know about Beethoven's interest in in Hoffmann. And and you know I, I have a sneaking suspicion that. Uh, if Beethoven had read Hoffman's reviews of the Fifth Symphony or of some of his other works, he probably would have said, what is this guy
1: talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to get to that in a little bit more detail. But uh, but let's talk, let's tack rather now to, uh, to hearing Beethoven, uh, mm. which certainly I, I should just say right off the top, uh, I found it a very, very moving and illuminating book on all sorts of different levels, I think uh, kudos to you for for writing that work It, it left a resounding impression on me so uh, what was the response in general that you had from from people who were not let 's start with people who were not musicologists or professional musicians. Uh, what sort of a response did you get? And was it the response that you were hoping to achieve? Um, Absolutely,
0: yes. Uh, I uh, I guess I should say that the, the first audience that I had in mind in writing this book was the public. There is not nearly as much publicly accessible Writing about music, or you know, what I would call serious writing about music, uh, as there is about a lot of other academic subjects like art or philosophy or history, where you can read, uh, find a, in a, a bookstore, uh, you know, lots of books by uh, scholars who are writing for the public. Uh, I wanted to do that uh, and, and do it about music, and and I would say that uh, by far the the most important reactions that I've gotten have been, uh, for example, a, a colleague at Baylor told me that uh, he had a friend uh, who uh, was losing his hearing and, and was struggling with that and, and who told him, you know, one of the most meaningful things for me in this this journey has been uh, reading this book written by a guy at Baylor about his experience with his wife and with Beethoven. And, and you know, knowing that, that my book has spoken to people who are actually Dealing with similar problems in, in that kind of a way uh, is, uh, you know, I, I can't even express in words how much that means. Uh, I have also, the book has been reviewed uh, on, uh, in Opera News and a couple of newspapers on various uh, online sites, the New York Journal of books and, uh, and so forth. Interestingly, it still hasn't really gotten a review in a major academic journal. Uh, but uh, as, as far as the public audience, uh, it has far, far outstripped everything else I've ever written in terms of uh, uh, people reacting to it. And, and the, the, the reaction has been almost universally positive. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm quite gratified by it.
1: Why do you think it is that there has been a review in a major academic journal? Could it be that there is some degree of, let's say, snobbishness? Because it was oriented towards both the general public and professionals in the music world, there might have been some reticence to take it as seriously academically uh, as as should have been the case. Would you go that far, or or might there be some other reason? Uh,
0: no, no, no. I I don't think that actually, because uh, I interestingly I have also uh, heard from just about every other. Uh, person doing Beethoven research in North America, but, that uh, uh, they have also loved the book, uh, and uh, it's also a very gratifying experience going to the uh, American Musicological Society convention in Boston a couple of years ago, and, and there was a little pre-conference about Beethoven before that, and, and you know it, it was was clear to me that the book had been read by just about everybody and that, that uh, uh, a lot of people uh, were taking it very seriously. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, it takes a while for things to be reviewed in uh, the academic press, especially in the humanities. And, and uh, of course, there's been COVID and uh, a lot of disruption and so forth. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, okay. you know, I, I, everything in my experience has suggests that, that I suggested that I did manage to hit that balance in that book to, to write something that at the same time appeals to. Uh, portions of the public that are interested in these issues, uh, but also uh, was was meaningful and, and maybe even revelatory to uh, uh, people in the academic field.
1: Well, that certainly makes sense to me, because from my perspective, it works on several different levels. It works certainly in terms of the basic level of forcing one to reestablish one's biases and, to some extent, re-examine Contemporary mythology about Beethoven and hearing loss, this very naive notion, perhaps romantic notion, that here is this wonderfully talented musical genius who, uh, by some terrible twist of fate, loses his hearing and thus hears music in his head nonetheless to compensate for it and pours that out. This very one-dimensional idea that notwithstanding this this uh this great cosmic injustice he simply hears all the music in his head nonetheless and continues onwards and the story is vastly 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 more complicated than that mm-hmm. uh touching on all sorts of issues of not only his own personal determination but key insights from contemporary neuroscience Key insights from the history of what we know about Beethoven and how he thought and how he visualized and 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 how he not only struggled but was able to in some ways elevate himself up, uh, because of his constraints by utilizing everything that he had at his disposal around him and and so that the idea of being able to understand and transcend. Pat and simplistic mythology that, in and of itself, is very interesting to a wide number of people. And as you've mm-hmm. said, and as as I hope we will get back to, Beethoven has a has a remarkably large draw <laughs> across yes. all societies, across all cultures, and so forth, and is conspicuous in that particular manner as well. So there's there's that I think which would resonate, as it were, with a, a large number of people. Of course, there's the personal aspect of it that the 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 interplay and the counterplay as it were that that you present between your wife's deafness and how she struggled with the terrible uh limitations that were imposed on her and learning from that and 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 trying to understand what was going on and be able to through your musical knowledge be able to also draw parallels and extend that to what Beethoven must have been struggling with
0: a big part of what made the story interesting. Uh, was, uh, as, as you say, having a chance to, to, to peck away at that myth about Beethoven that, that he was this heroic person, which, and you know, I don't mean to say he was not heroic. I don't mean to say he didn't have a, a, a significant struggle in his life, but, but the idea that, that he somehow triumphed over all this adversity and that and, and that's the primary message of his music, I just think there's so much more to it. And, and exploring that doesn't take away from the the, the myth of Beethoven; it, it enlarges it considerably.
1: Well, presumably, it makes it more realistic. What was he really doing? How was he really able to produce the music that he was able to produce, notwithstanding what had happened to him? And by really getting into the guts of of understanding that, rather than just falling back on while well, he was a genius, or while well, he heard the music in his head, or while well, right. he he was able to uh, uh, somehow disregard uh, his, uh, his incipient and growing deafness, um, that requires a level of understanding Not just scientific understanding and conjecturing of what he must be able to be doing, but to some extent, understanding on a a sympathetic level. What are people Mm -hmm. who are actually facing those hurdles? What are they dealing with? Through utilizing all of the resources at their command, they were able to, to some extent, nonetheless flourish. And mm-hmm. and I think that that is a testimony. At least that's my sense. So it's a crazy thing for me to be arguing this with you, but that that is a testimony to their perseverance, to the to the to the human spirit. Absolutely,
0: oh, it it uh, it absolutely is.
1: Uh, I uh, uh,
0: of course, uh, your your listeners may not know the full background on this. My my late wife Barbara uh unlike beethoven who went deaf gradually uh lost her hearing suddenly uh in uh, her mid-40s uh it had been getting progressively worse for years but when she went deaf it was like boom she just couldn't hear uh anymore uh, and uh, uh that was uh almost 20 years ago now uh and uh I at at first I kind of resisted the idea that uh, oh you know here's an opportunity to learn about deafness to give me insight into Beethoven because I mean when your wife goes deaf uh, you know that's uh, you're you're thinking about your wife and your life and everything that is going to evolve and everything is changing and all the adjustments that you, you have to make and uh, you know how to how to continue communicating how to involve your children how you know who are, who are still relatively young when this happened uh, you know how to make the family work and so forth and you know maybe somewhere at the bo- very bottom of all of that is the idea that you know maybe someday this will give me some insight into what Beethoven went through but that you know certainly was not at the the the, the top of the pile uh, at first uh, it was uh just uh, the experience of watching the, the day-to-day struggle of what it meant to adjust to this, the fact that there would be breakthroughs, but also setbacks, uh, the fact that there were enormous surprises along the way that brought uh, insights into uh, my understanding of hearing and of music that I probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Uh, it was, was uh, uh, going through that whole process. Um, and then... Uh, uh, almost 10 years ago now, Barbara passed away. This was all uh, the result of uh, uh, a brain tumor that she had had in her early 20s. And uh, at that time, they gave her a very large dose of radiation, um, which uh, had to, because of the logistics of, of whatever, it had to be administered through her ears. Uh, and so it damaged her hearing. Uh, Also, I guess, did a number on the circulation throughout her head. And and, uh, so eventually, uh, the brain tumor, as far as I know, never came back. But the the radiation uh, was uh, the long term effects were pretty devastating. Uh, So, you know, there was also more to to Barbara's story than just hearing loss. Uh, She uh, uh, basically lost her sense of balance uh, as well. Uh, she had some other uh, side effects that I talk about in the book. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, she, well, she also suffered from a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, which I didn't talk about in the book, and I'm not sure it's directly relevant or, or uh, whether it was in any way caused by the radiation or was just another unfortunate thing that happened to her. But this is an incredibly painful condition of the facial nerves. Uh, which uh, you know just made her life even more difficult during the last several years. So uh, I mean, I had a a, a real object lesson of, of what it means just to cope with with sickness and adversity and and challenges that other people can't even begin to understand on a on a daily basis. So that, uh, uh, you know, and and. Uh, and yet, Barbara just slogged through all this stuff and, and kept going. And, and uh, I kind of got the insight, well, you know, that's what Beethoven did, too. Things often didn't really go his way. Uh, he, he suffered from an awful lot of things. I mean, he had uh, also debilitating digestive problems through most of his life, which might have been due to a congenital uh, problem uh, as well. Um, and he just kept going. Uh, and you know that that takes courage um, but it's also important not to uh, I think uh, idealize that courage because these people also suffer, and that's real
1: yeah you you mention disability studies in the disability community, and at some points in the book you also touch upon the difficulty of of looking at deafness through the prism of a disability in and of itself. You're very specific, and you say for people like Beethoven, for people like Barbara, it's a very different circumstance because they they were hearing, they were part of a uh, of a hearing community, and they had that mm-hmm. taken away from them. There are, of course, many people who grow up in a deaf community who sign, who who are part of a who are part of a world. And and who have a very different perspective when it comes to questions mm-hmm. like cochlear implants and so forth, where they they resent uh, to to a very reasonable degree, uh, to a very understandable degree, being looked upon as people who need to be cured or people who need to uh, to mm-hmm. to take advantage of technology to become something other than they are. I imagine that in the process of of living through these experiences, you developed a greater awareness of that as well.
0: Oh, yes. Um, And for, there there are many people in the deaf community who would challenge the very idea that deafness is a disability. Um, It uh, often is is seen as more of a linguistic issue. Uh, You know, deaf people speak a language, uh, which is sign language Um, and uh, they're, it's in, in that sense, it's no more of a disability than speaking a foreign language in a place where most people don't understand it. Um, and yes, there has been enormous resistance in the deaf community to cochlear implants uh, because of very real concerns. So the, uh, first, that the more people that get cochlear implants, Uh, the less people potentially will be learning sign language, and and, uh, so the the deaf community could become even more uh, isolated, but but also because of the the understanding that it's not a cure, uh, that uh, somebody who has a cochlear implant is still deaf, and the implant could fail at any time, Uh, and Mainstreaming, as it's often called, is 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 not necessarily the ideal solution. Um, you know, I, I might not have said this when I first started this work, but uh, you know, I have serious doubts uh, at this point about whether a young child who is born deaf, particularly if they're born to deaf parents, should be given a cochlear implant because uh, that uh, immediately starts the process of isolating them from the deaf community, isolating their parents. Uh, and uh, encouraging them to learn a skill which even at the best, they will never learn as well as people that are born hearing uh, and uh, so you know there there's a lot of uh, uh, real genuine uh concern about cochlear implants, which I certainly hope i I did not minimize uh in in the book uh, I think uh, uh, Barbara was unique in the sense that you know she hadn't grown up deaf. She didn't know ASL. She became deaf as an adult. Uh, there was no question that she would get real benefits from the cochlear implant uh, that uh, uh, that uh, she wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, and uh, you know I think uh, even opponents of, of cochlear implantation understand that. Uh, but in the same sense, for those very reasons, you know there was an enormous rift between someone like Barbara. Uh, and the the uh, uh, community of deaf people who who uh, you know think of deafness as a part of their identity
1: this notion of community uh, is a constant theme throughout the work you're mm-hmm. You're frequently touching upon the negative effects of deafness in terms of how it removes somebody from the community, be it the um, the family community, be it your extended social community. Uh, there are all sorts of vignettes, both uh, what you saw Barbara going through in terms of how she would react to uh, members of, of her church community. There's this, mm-hmm. th- I think there was a, a marriage counseling. Um,
0: yeah, we, we did we did retreats for Marriage Encounter, which we started before she went deaf, and, and then she found she couldn't really participate in that community anymore.
1: You talk about being in a large group environment where at first people are uh, engaged in doing what is required in order to uh, make themselves uh, uh, engage in communication with her and then at some point things just spin out of control and and she mm-hmm. felt increasingly isolated. There's this sense of isolation that deafness brings and uh, that you that you witnessed with her and that you conjectured mm-hmm. might have been happening to Beethoven on a regular basis that really focuses on on the the imperilment in terms of removal or potential removal from the community, the sense of isolationism, which is entailed by this. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, well, actually, if, if, I, if I could just follow up on that for a moment, I think one of the most interesting things uh, for me in, in terms of what you just said is after coming to that understanding that, that deafness is profoundly socially isolating. Uh, you know, Barbara said that the time between when she lost her hearing and got her cochlear implant, felt like being in solitary confinement. It completely cut her off from from contact with almost everybody else. Uh, And uh, with that understanding, when I went back and reread that famous Heiligenstadt Testament, uh, I was really struck. At at no point in that letter does does, uh, Beethoven really say, I am distressed by the fact that I will not be able to hear music anymore. It is all about the social isolation, the embarrassment that he feels, the profound self-consciousness that, that of having to uh, admit that he is a professional musician with uh, with hearing problems, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, as though the the issue of well, am I going to be able to keep composing? Will I be able to keep doing music? That's that's you know, like a blip which doesn't even make it to the surface of that. Uh, so yes, and then just a couple of years later, uh, Beethoven wrote the opera Fidelio, in which the what's now the second act of the opera begins with the scene of Florestan in solitary confinement in a pitch black uh, dungeon, and and uh, you know, I, I I really made that connection that that this is this this is Beethoven in this scene. This is what he was going through, and he wanted people to know it.
1: Yeah, I wanted to pick up on the way that you managed to weave in contemporary understanding of sense perception and neuroscience, and ask you some questions about the implications of that for the future, based upon uh, not just what. Mm-hmm. What you've written and what you've experienced, but also through many conversations that I've had with neuroscientists and so forth, the standard story seems to be: we used to think that the brain was this passive stage, as it were, that was that would record sense data as it as it mm-hmm. were coming into ourselves. So, it, it, it the naive picture I think that we all had, I certainly used to have that what the brain does is it just records stuff around us. So we touch stuff, we see things, we hear things, and mm-hmm. it measures that, it records that, and somehow it interprets that. And that's what the brain does, and that's what all of our sensory apparatus does. And that picture has changed remarkably over mm-hmm. the past 10 or 15 years, perhaps longer, but certainly in that, in that rough time period, where the brain is regarded near universally as vastly more active than that, that it is constantly Mm -hmm. engaging, it is predicting, it is interpreting the world around it in 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 an extremely active way, and then measuring what it receives in terms of and comparing and contrasting that with the predictions that it has made and refining that and, and moving forwards, so you give specific examples of this in terms of how the brain uh, how we understand that the brain reacts to a cochlear implant, how the the sounds that are heard by somebody who has received a cochlear implant are vastly different from what their initial expectations are when it 's turned on, and the, the the learning process the attuning process the 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 prediction and adapting process that goes on so my question eventually it takes me a while sometimes to get to the question so my <laughs> my question is to what extent has this understanding of the 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 new developments in neuroscience been passed on to the world of professional musicology and music in general is this the sort of thing that people are are by and large, very familiar with, and starting to write papers about, and think about, and say, "Oh yes, now we understand how the brain actually interprets sound. We understand that uh, that, that we may be using other senses in parallel, and that uh, this gives us deeper understanding into the, the the mindset of various composers, into the way we hear ourselves, into how societal." taste changes in terms of uh, our particular proclivities for this sort of music over another sort of music. Is there, a, is there a growing trend now in professional musicology to actually be able to marry insights from contemporary neuroscience, as you have done in many ways, or at least as it appeared to me that you did in hearing Beethoven, or is that not so much the case? Um,
0: well, not really. Uh, th- there is a subfield of music perception, uh, and uh, you know, there are people who have written about this. i I know you have interviewed Diana Deutsch. Uh, There are people like Elizabeth Margulis, who uh, wrote a book called On Repeat, How Music Plays the Brain, Um, and uh, a number of other people who uh, have have written on music perception and and drawing on the insights of neuroscience. Oliver Sacks famously wrote uh, Musicophilia, Uh, and a lot of people have read that, I think, and said, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, But in terms of it penetrating into the, the broader... Awareness, even among musicians, of uh, I, I would say not really. Uh, and uh, you know, I think there there are a lot of important insights uh, to be be had there. Uh, if I play something on my computer, would your listeners be able to hear it?
1: It depends on how the mics are set up, but it could be. I think you should give it a shot.
0: Okay, let me try this. Um, I got these recordings from Nina Kraus at Northwestern University. So this is a recording of what, uh, at, at least a, an approximation of what a human voice sounds like to someone with a cochlear implant. Here is uh, the second recording, which is what was actually being said in the first one.
1: The juice of lemons makes fine punch.
0: Okay, now I'm going to play the first one again. Okay, now, if you're like most people, when they hear the juice of lemons makes fine punch, well, but when they hear the first recording, they can't understand anything. Then when you hear what's actually being said, and then you go back and listen to the first recording, suddenly you hear it. Um, And that's as clear a demonstration as I know of how the brain frames information. When you know what you're going to hear, you hear it in the middle of what otherwise sounds like just a jumbled collection of, of rather irritating sounds.
1: So from a, from a, a musicology perspective or from a musicologist's perspective or from a historian of music's perspective, I'm using those terms interchangeably because you told me mm-hmm. I could, so I will. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you, you mentioned that the book was generally well-received, from people at all levels, from mm-hmm. uh, musicologists, from from non-musicologists and so forth. So the non-musicologist part, I think I get. I'd like to explore the reception from the musicology, from the professional uh, historians of, of music and, and musicologists. Because what I'm wondering is, are they saying, oh, Wallace is writing this book and giving deeper and unusual insights into what Beethoven must have been feeling and thinking. And based upon his combination of scientific awareness, his personal experiences, his knowledge of the music itself, his knowledge of the sketchbooks and so forth and so on, and he's put this together in such a way that he's made a compelling argument for reinterpreting what Beethoven must have been going through as he was creating this music. And this gives us Depth not only from a biographical perspective, but also from a musical perspective, in terms of what sorts of things we can now believe or have confidence that he was actually trying to accomplish. Was it that sort of thing, uh, or or was it more? This is very interesting. That's one approach, and uh, uh, everybody's entitled to to, to his opinion. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm, what I'm asking? Yes,
0: yes, and I, I think we'll know the answer to that in fifteen or twenty years. Uh, <laughs> I, I, at this point, I have no idea whether people who told me that they were blown away by the book are are completely reevaluating the way they think about Beethoven, or whether they just, as you say, read and thought that's interesting. But I'm going to go back to what I've been doing. Um, it's, uh, you know, of course, I've worked on reception and. Uh, reception takes time to unfold and and uh, you know I will see if it starts getting cited widely in Beethoven scholarship if, if uh, people show that they have taken my uh, insights and and taken them in, in directions that uh, you know maybe I didn't anticipate but that that expand our our understanding of Beethoven then uh, then uh, I will know that uh, I've really made an impact uh, I can't really say at this point
1: Okay. Uh, I guess the reason why I'm coupling this with the neuroscience is mm. because, to me, again, as a as a non-specialist, without any pretenses of being anything other than that, Beethoven, to me, represents a particular case, a very significant, important, perhaps even extreme particular case. Here is this mm. overwhelmingly acknowledged musical genius who was so prolific and who himself suffered... Uh, this this, um, this unique set of, or relatively unique set of circumstances over a relatively long period of time. And on top of that, left these notebooks, as, as, as you pointed out, and all these other clues and, and testaments mm-hmm. and so forth, so that we have, uh, not to say that we, obviously we have an unequivocally clear way of understanding what was going on, but he's a he's a paradigmatic case of how we might be able to apply aspects of contemporary neuroscience and recognition of these different senses that are, that are, uh, that are involved in the creative process to mm-hmm. be able to come up with a deeper understanding. But of course he's a human being and all human beings are doing things like this to some extent. And so what I was wondering and what I keep asking, and I, I realize it's unfair to be asking you this, but I don't know who else to ask. So I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you to what extent might we be able to say, well, gosh, if that's true, then maybe we should look at the entire composition process a little bit differently. Or if we're looking at intentionality of composers, sure, mm. Beethoven is an extreme case for all of this, but we might even want to writ large, somehow extend our understanding and interpretation of how people are going about creating music. That's, that's kind of where I was going with that. But, uh, but I appreciate that it'll take some time to, to see what sort of impact that has.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, in terms of, you know, understanding the creative process, of course, creativity is, is very idiosyncratic and, uh, you know, I maybe I'm reading more into what you're asking than, than you mean me to, but I, I, I you, you might be asking whether people who are going into composition might be, uh, reading this and, and, uh, thinking about, well, what can I, what can I learn from this? Um, and, uh. I would certainly hope that they could learn things. Um, what they would learn, uh, I'm not really sure, because I'm although I have done some composition, I'm not really a composer myself. Uh, one uh, important aspect of it uh, is uh, uh, understanding uh, the role of improvisation, um, and that's uh, I think when when people have this idea that Beethoven, uh, particularly in his later works, when he was deaf, that he just heard stuff in his head and wrote it down. Uh, well, we know that he continued to work at the piano, um, and that uh, his, although you know, certainly he, he improvised on paper. He wrote many, many sketches and took sketch paper with him everywhere he went. He, he also uh, depended on contact with the keyboard uh, even when he was hearing very little, and I talk in the book about how he had this resonator constructed to put over his piano in the late years to, that reflected the sound back toward him so that he could use whatever minimal residual hearing he had, uh, and also his sense of vibration uh, to to connect with the music. So, you know, I I, I, I guess I would plunk down on the side of, of saying that that I think the idea that that composition can or, or should be an entirely mental process is wrong. That even as, as great and seemingly abstracted a composer as Beethoven depended on contact with its instrument, on, on constant improvisation in order to generate musical ideas.
1: And that brings two other topics up, at least to my mind. One is the matter of interpretation. So if I'm a, a concert pianist, presumably... I'm interested in understanding what Beethoven was feeling, what he was trying to convey, what his experiences were, what the music meant to him in order to help in my interpretation and my re-expression of that music in performance. Mm -hmm. Have you heard from musicians, professional musicians, people who are involved in interpreting Beethoven this is very interesting. This gave me a deeper perspective into how I might be able to get a deeper understanding of what Beethoven was was going for or what was motivating him. Have you had any, any of that reaction at all? And then I'd like to get to the improvisation bit, but but first, let me just ask that question.
0: Uh, well, no, I haven't. With, with all of the reactions I have gotten to the book, I have not heard from a single professional musician who has uh, told me that this has made me rethink the way that I play Beethoven. Um, and I'm not trying to fault anybody in saying that. I think that's just that the, the, the channel between musicologists and performers is to some extent broken. I generally don't expect what I write to uh, make much of an impression in the professional performance
1: world. So that's very surprising to me. And let me just ask you a few questions about that. Not so much within hearing Beethoven, particularly, or you particularly, just in terms of that that chain, because I I would think I would hope that if I'm somebody who makes my living trying to interpret Beethoven or or Schubert or or anyone, I mean it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with uh, any particular uh, composer. I would be deeply motivated and trying to understand. What they were going through, what they were thinking, what they were feeling. Why do you think that chain is broken? Is it because they 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 don't value those particular insights? They think they're too abstract. They think they're they're in some ways not relevant to really getting at the genuine uh, intentionality of the uh, of the composer, or perhaps it doesn't it's not about intentionality. It's confusing to me to, to, mm-hmm. to hear that that chain, generally speaking, is broken. And I'd, I'd like at least you to speculate as to why you think that is. Uh, well,
0: I can, I can speculate a great deal. I, I, I think, first of all, that my sense is that performers are not necessarily as interested in the composer's intentionality as we tend to think. Um, and also that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and uh, I'll give a couple of examples here. Um, Wanda Landowska, who was one of the icons of the, the uh, uh, dawning historical performance music in the early 20th century, you know, revived the use of harpsichord as a performance instrument uh, and so forth, uh, once said something like, uh, uh, and she's playing a piece by Rameau, If uh, Rameau were to come back uh, and uh, listen to me play this piece now, I would would tell him, Mr. Rameau, you did a very good job composing this piece, but uh, you are dead. Now, please go away and let me play it. (laughs) Uh, And uh, then there is the enormous paradox that we know that uh, composers like Mozart and Beethoven did an enormous amount of improvisation when they performed, and that certainly any uh, attempt to revive the composer's intention about how their music was performed would involve reviving that element of uh, of improvisation. And yet, that has been a relatively small part of the historical performance uh, practice movement. You know, there are a handful of people like Robert Levin who can improvise brilliantly in the style of Mozart, and uh, you know, then. Intriguingly, there was also a recording of Mozart piano concertos made by Chick Corea, uh, in which uh, he improvised cadenzas that were you know, full blown jazz. Uh, and uh, uh, purists may scoff at that, but uh, you know, the fact is we know historically when. Beethoven wrote a cadenza for a Mozart piano concerto, he made it sound like Beethoven, not like Mozart. When Brahms wrote a cadenza for a Mozart piano concerto, he made it sound like Brahms. So, you know, theoretically, uh, they would not have had trouble with the idea of somebody like Chick Corea coming and playing cadenza uh, in his own style. Uh, But I say theoretically because uh, uh, it's important to understand uh, that... uh, we're, we're talking about something which by definition cannot happen you know we're making a kind of appeal to an authority that doesn't exist because the fact is beethoven is not alive today uh and if he were he would be uh you know 250 years old um and uh there would have been a lot that would have happened in Beethoven's life in between now and the time when he lived, which might have changed his mind about how he wanted his music performed. Um, And so, you know, the idea that we can somehow take Beethoven from the early 19th century and bring him back to life nowadays uh, and have him tell us how he wanted us to perform his music. I mean, I'll be honest, when I play Beethoven's piano music. I don't worry about that. I play it so it makes sense to me, and I think that is pretty much what professional musicians generally aim to do.
1: Do, do we have any written testimony or documents of Beethoven or or, or any of his contemporaries or near contemporaries opining on their philosophy when it came to not just playing their music, but music of any generation. I mean, most of these people were virtuoso performers themselves. Did they write or discuss or go on record as saying, when I play Mozart or when I play Bach or when I play, or what I would hope that people who would play this in 50 years would do their own thing. Is there any of that or expectation of the ability to improvise built into the anticipated uh, performance. Do we know any of that? Well, I mean, I don't
0: think Beethoven and Mozart seriously thought about whether people would be performing their music in 50 years, uh, because the assumption then would have been that they wouldn't. Uh, and that assumption was based on practical experience. Most of what audiences listened to at that time was new music with uh, you know maybe an occasional piece that was 20 years older. Uh, or more. So uh, the, the the cases of, of people uh, reviving uh, older music, you know, you have to you have to look to somebody like Mendelssohn, uh, who revived Bach's St Matthew Passion in 1829, a uh, hundred years after it was written, uh, and completely changed the orchestration, which he had to because people weren't playing. Uh, harpsichords anymore. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, cut it heavily and and did various other things to make it appeal more to contemporary audience. You know, all while at the same time saying he was trying to get it as close to what Bach wanted as he could. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're if you're interested in these issues, uh, my my musicology colleague Richard Trebescan has written a great deal about the, the paradoxes in our understanding of performance practice and and uh, uh, his uh, his book text and act has provocative uh, thoughts about a lot of these questions. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, uh, but uh, you know, I think the, uh, the, the one thing that I will say is that historically Beethoven represents a kind of uh, turning point in our understanding of who is important in music. Uh, you know who is the primary creative artist is it the composer or is it the performer uh, before Beethoven I think most people would have said the performer of course that's the person who's actually doing the music the composer is a facilitator uh, the expectation that we have that uh, the Composer should be regarded as the authority, as the primary creative artist, as the the person whose utterances the performer facilitates, uh, is largely something that has grown up since Beethoven and has grown up in reaction to uh, our uh, understanding of his music. And I would also say that in many ways it limits our understanding of his music. It limits our ability to really milk his music for its full potential, if you will.
1: So why is that? Explain why you think it limits our ability to to milk it to its full potential.
0: Well, you know, go back to that review by E.T.A. Hoffman uh, that you mentioned earlier, which I said, you know, Beethoven, if he read it, might have said, what was he writing about? Uh, but uh, uh, Hoffman described Beethoven's Fifth Symphony uh, as a mind-blowing experience as as something, but also a pretty scary one. Uh, It was something, and he kind of linked it together with all of Beethoven's other instrumental music in that regard. This music invokes terror, horror, dread, fear, pain. Listening to this music, we are immersed in pain. We are taken down to the most painful depths of the universe, and we are transported by this experience and and uh, emerge as visionaries. Um, you know, how, how much does that have to do with the way people hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony nowadays? You, know, you would listen, listen to it, and it's a classic, and it's something that, uh, you know, has a certain amount of cultural cachet and and uh, that everybody's supposed to be able to recognize. But, uh, you know, h- how many people would listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and have the experience that E.T.A. Hoffman had? Of, uh, saying, you know, this, this music makes me feel dark, powerful emotions, and that's a good thing.
1: Well, of course, there's also the question of to what extent Hoffman was saying this because he wanted to write an impressive review, because he wanted (laughs) to have it... Associated within a broader philosophical context that he was promulgating, you know, all of these factors, because he wanted mm-hmm. to come across as a as a powerful intellectual figure that uh, was able to pull various strands together. Or it's obviously difficult to parse all of these things. Um, a question before we move on to some of your present and future work, and uh, this is obviously deeply speculative and makes mm-hmm. no pretenses of. Anything other than that, but what do you think Beethoven would think today about music in general, let alone classical music? Were he to be resurrected, and walk in uh, the door with, uh, let's just say, with with the full ability to hear. Since we're resurrecting him, we can we can obviously do that as well. What 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 do you imagine his thoughts might be about the state of the world in 2021 musically speaking?
0: What I really hear you asking, I think, is what do I think about the state of classical music as somebody who has studied a lot of Beethoven?
1: No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm asking, I'll, I'll ask you that question later. I'm asking what you think Beethoven would think. Th- those are two very different questions.
0: Yeah. So if I if I can wrap my head around the idea that Beethoven comes back to life in, in, uh, uh, in 2021, I, I think First of all, he's probably very surprised that he is still the most popular composer ever because, uh, uh, you know, that, again, that would have been inconceivable uh, in his time. If, if uh, you had told Beethoven that uh, Josquin de Cray was the most popular composer ever, I mean, that would, that would be roughly equivalent. If, if in his lifetime, people had listened to somebody from 250 years earlier uh, and his music was still more popular than anybody else's. Uh, you know, I think Beethoven might very well have said, you know, what's, what's the matter with you people? Don't you have anybody who can, can write uh, uh, music that you like more? I mean, not that he would have minded that people were listening to his music, but I, I have to think he would have been somewhat surprised that, that, uh, that creativity in classical music has not moved on apace that, that uh, you know, we still tend to want to hear these people from the 19th century and before uh, more than anybody else.
1: What do you think you would have thought of different musical trends or genres or, or the amalgamation of all sorts of musical activities, new music, world music, jazz, pop, R&B, hip hop, whatever, would, would he have regarded them as, in your estimation, obviously speculating, 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 mm-hmm. would he have imagined them as the way they are often described now, which is just another form of music equivalent to Beethoven and Brahms and just mm-hmm. different stuff in a different way? Or would, or would he, in your estimation, not look at them in that way? Well, you know, in, in a sense,
0: uh, this this ties back to the same kind of question because it, in order to understand uh, current popular music, you really have to understand the culture that it comes from uh, because uh, you know so much uh, so much of the music that you're talking about comes from particular uh, cultural circumstances. I mean just take jazz for example, which is a, a very big genre that that stems from Uh, and and expresses uh, uh, a large part of the experience of African-Americans in in 20th century America, as of course does a lot of of later popular music. You know, Beethoven, if he just came back to life in 2021, would know nothing about that and would would therefore have no no broader cultural understanding from which to make sense of jazz. Uh, And so it's hard to really say what he would have thought of it. because uh, that, that kind of assumes that he knew things uh, that he doesn't know if we just bring him back to life in 2021 uh, now uh, taking, taking the broader view uh, say you imagine that Beethoven actually is alive today and is 250 years old uh, you know then uh, then he has witnessed some of those things he has either chosen to pay attention to them or not and has either absorbed the lessons from them or not and and uh, but of course that would make him a very different person. From the Beethoven who lived uh, in the early 19th century, so I, I hope I don't. I, I know I sound like I'm continuing to evade the question, but uh, it's, it's it's. Well, you're a professional
1: academic. Yes. I mean, you <laughs> have a you have a great deal of practice in evading
0: questions. In evading questions, there we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I just uh, to to me the the question of what would Beethoven think if he were alive today is is just uh, you know it's it's. It's it's asking for a kind of magical thinking uh, that uh, is, I guess I would say not particularly helpful, Um, because I think uh, in terms in terms of the situation of classical music, and I if if you don't mind, I am going to bring it bring it back to to uh, uh, what I think about this. Uh, you know, where where we are nowadays. Um, uh, certainly, uh, if you look at the music of any past historical period, I mean, just take the time of Beethoven, most of the music of his time uh, has been forgotten. Uh, and the same is true of uh, other past periods. We, we only listen to a, a very small percentage uh, of music from, from any period in the past. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people will say, well, there's a, a good reason for that, that music doesn't really speak to our culture uh, anymore. Um, and I guess what I would say in response to that is, "Is well, that, that may be true of a large percentage of music written in the past. But uh, as far as the small percentage that we do listen to nowadays, if that music didn't speak to our culture, people in our culture wouldn't be performing it. Um, and people in our culture wouldn't be listening to it. So, you know, the the real question is, not so much what would Beethoven have wanted, but uh, how is this relevant to life in 2021?
1: So perhaps you can expand on that. Before you do, maybe I can ask something a little bit more focused, Mm -hmm. something that bemuses me. When I read your work on Beethoven, When I listen to Beethoven myself, when I read other people's works, there is a tremendous amount of emotional involvement. Uh, There is a sense at which his his music speaks to me emotionally, but there's also an intellectual level. There is a great deal of understanding and musical understanding and depth. And the more I learn and the more uh, passages I read that are uh, explicated by someone like yourself, the deeper level of intellectual enjoyment I can extract from from a piece of music, or at least potentially not necessarily but certainly potentially, and the greater an experience I have so i'm maybe mm-hmm. it sounds like i 'm wandering, but i 'm going to hopefully get to the point. One of the things that irritates me is that very often there is this what I would call very simplistic. An inappropriate dichotomy between to paraphrase Woody Allen, the head and the heart, mm-hmm. and this notion that music either speaks to you emotionally or there's some intellectual process that you go through. And mm-hmm. I think that's just completely wrong. I think the more I understand something, the greater the level of of my awareness is. And I have a long way to go musically speaking. I don't uh, I don't pretend to have a huge depth of knowledge, but I have some knowledge. And the more things can be explained to me, the easier it is for me to see beauty, to see, mm-hmm. to appreciate what was going on, to see harmony, and to appreciate things aesthetically. It, it reminds me to take an analogy in a somewhat different direction of what Feynman famously said when he protested that just because you understand what a rainbow is doesn't mean that you are in, in any less of a position to appreciate it aesthetically. In fact, one could argue that you were even in a greater position to appreciate it aesthetically. So so that's where I start from the sense that I reject this dichotomy, that I believe very strongly in the, to some extent, ineffable aesthetic aspect of music to move people, to emotionally resonate with them. But I do not think that that is in any way inhibited. In fact, I think it is advanced by a level of intellectual understanding and commitment. And Mm -hmm. When I look, so now we're talking about me, not you or Beethoven, when I look at, at, at the contemporary musical scene, I see a lot of things that are just very simplistic. That doesn't mean that I can't resonate with them or enjoy them or appreciate them or, or indeed uh, recognize them to be products of our time and our culture and all the rest of that. But they seem on the whole to be considerably less intellectual. There's not as much depth that's there. There's not as much that can be extracted. doesn't mean that I don't listen to pop music or that I haven't. I do, and and Mm -hmm. I have, but I make a, a real distinction between those things. And when one talks about music as representing a time and a place and a culture there's a sense that at least that i get that well everything's kind of all the same it's all equivalent we move from here to there and that this is the music which is popular today and there was bach and there was and then a century later there was beethoven and and then the jazz age came and now people mm-hmm. are listening to, to rap music and it's all kind of the same because our culture is moving along. And I, I at some level, in fact, a, a, a quite a significant level, I reject that. I say, no, you, you, there is something objectively different. Yes, society is changing. Yes, things, uh, yes, culture is changing in ways that can't often be evaluated. But I can make objective distinctions on aesthetic grounds with different types mm-hmm. of music. Um, Does that hold any water for you, what I've just been ranting about? How would would you respond to that? (laughs)
0: Um, Well, yes, absolutely. I agree that that intellect and emotion are not separate things in terms of our reaction to music, that they are tied together in a profound way, and that that, uh, uh, real emotional depth in performing or understanding music uh, necessitates uh, looking into how it's put together and, uh, and uh, its, uh, its background and, and a deeper knowledge about, uh, uh, about every aspect uh, of what you're doing. Um, and, uh, and yes, I suppose when you get right down to it, I, I agree with you that there are kinds of music uh, in which that challenge is taken more seriously, um, and is, uh, more a part of what makes the music tick, uh, than anything else. And, you know, I, I, I say this guardedly because, uh, in, in a lot of academic disciplines these days, you're, you're almost not allowed to say things like that. Um, you know, there's the, the sense that, that, uh, uh, as as you were articulating it, music moves forward and, and tastes change, and, and music is music, and, and it marches on, uh, and so forth. Uh, and uh, when I was younger, uh, I was very concerned about the future of what I guess we still call classical music. Uh, because uh, I would go to classical concerts, uh, and... I would see that the audience consisted primarily of people who are over 40 uh, and college students. and uh, So it seemed to me that the audience for classical music was aging and perhaps dying out, and that was rather dire uh, for the future. Well, I can say that at this point in my life, uh, I go to classical concerts and the audience still consists of people who are over 40 and college students. Um, And what that tells me is it's not that the audience for this kind of music is aging out and dying it's that there's something about this kind of music that people like better when they get older that speaks to people with a certain amount of life experience and, and people who have really had time to uh, to, to think uh, and assimilate their their experience of music and, and you know who who maybe haven't listened to Beethoven and Brahms all their life and, and you know, who maybe don't think that that uh, Beethoven and Brahms is the only kind of music to listen to, but, uh, but who find that it adds a kind of depth and, and, and breadth to their musical experience that they can't get anywhere else. Um, uh, so at, at this point in my life, I'm relatively encouraged uh, about uh, the future of what we still broadly call classical music. I, I, I would add... Uh, that uh, despite all the the uh, uh, the death knells that you hear proclaimed, uh, that uh, as someone who has listened to this kind of music all my life, I can tell you that there is more classical music available more easily accessible than there has ever been before, you know, multiple complete recordings of the Haydn symphonies, you know, all of the the masses by Josquin have been recorded. And if you subscribe to a streaming service, you can listen to these uh, virtually at any time and in any place. And that is one way in which musical culture has changed profoundly in the last hundred years, that music used to be almost by definition a public experience because you had to go hear somebody play it now anybody can plunk on a pair of headphones and listen to anything they want uh anywhere they they want to and uh, you know that's I, I that's not necessarily an unmitigated good thing but it is a fact that that uh, someone who wants to consume classical music can do so more easily and more broadly than ever before and uh, my high school self would have loved to have grown up in a world where that was true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and often underappreciated. I mean, I guess it's old guys like me and you who, uh, Mm -hmm. who were adults in the uh, in the pre-internet days who Mm -hmm. can appreciate the, the, the really transformative impact that has occurred with music, with with literature, with all sorts of things, you can just have access to 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 anything now, virtually instantaneously. It's really remarkable. I, I'd like to move to your current work on your particular interpretation of the greatness of Beethoven and uh, Leonard Bernstein's. Your take on his. Uh, His insights, but before I do, in keeping with what you were just saying, I'd like to ask you a personal question about to what extent your particular musical tastes have evolved. I've often wondered this with people who were involved in the professional music world in one way or another. Are they, in in some ways, inhibited in their ability to let's just say, just enjoy music, or do do you find that 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 a certain Notwithstanding everything I said before about how the the intellect enhances one's aesthetic appreciation and all the rest of that, is there a certain unfortunate conflation of these things where you find it difficult to pleasurably listen to music or feel moved by music without feeling yourself engaged in all sorts of analytical activities? And is there any uh, interference which, which 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 has occurred through that? So it's a two-part question. So the first mm-hmm. is, to, to what extent does uh, your professional uh, experience inhibit your simple enjoyment, as it were, of, of music? And the second is, how have your musical tastes evolved uh, over the past 10 years, say?
0: Um, well, uh, that question of just sitting down and enjoying music is uh, an interesting one because it's it sort of, I, I think what you're describing as enjoyment sort of implies not intellectualizing about it, just, you know, saying, oh, that sounds neat uh, and uh, uh, and letting it go, uh, or, or perhaps looking in music for things that are, are simpler and more straightforward. Now, I, I should say that back back in high school and college when i was cultivating my taste in, in classical music i was also very interested in the folk music of the southern appalachians where i grew up um, and uh, i i found in that music something that was sort of the opposite of what i found in beethoven which was just sort of you know direct unmediated. uh, uh this is this is where i mean you know, the real real love and enjoyment of music just just for the sake of of, of sitting down and, and playing it and uh, and singing it and, and, and sharing it with other people. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that, that aspect of it, sharing it with other people is, is a really important thing, especially in light of what I just said. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think being able to be in a social situation where, where, uh, somebody is Hey, I really like this. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, let's let's listen to this together that's that's important um, uh, my my wife Meg whom I married after Barbara passed away uh, it was was much more into classic rock music than I was growing up and you know she has has gotten me to listen to, to uh, things like uh, the, the the Who Quadrophenia, which uh, I confess I had never heard before, uh, and which I also confess I have to be in the right frame of mind in order to enjoy. Uh, but uh, I, there was one time recently when uh, when I was cooking dinner, and uh, and uh, Meg just said, "I want to. I'd like to listen to Quadrophenia. Why don't we put it on?" So I did, and I cranked up the volume, and it was just you know it was so great. It was it was uh, this was music that I mean it's complex. It, it's not it's it's not uh, it's not like there's nothing to it. It's 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 substantial music, but it's also you know loud and raucous and, and uh, at least in my ears, uh, and, and uh, uh, it it can really make you feel loose and down to earth. And uh, you know maybe maybe there hasn't been enough of that in my own musical experience, but I'm I'm capable uh, of opening up to that even when I mean especially when somebody that I care about uh, wants to, to share that with me.
1: Well, there's, there's, of course, music as a social experience. And again, this is one of the themes that, that seems to certainly go through your life. Um, I, I don't think I express myself very well. I don't want to beat this to death. I, I guess a good analogy to what I was trying to do would be imagine yourself being uh, a professor of English literature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're so in the habit of looking at a work, a great work of literature from an analytical perspective, which is not to say mm-hmm. that there's there's a problem with doing that or that it in any way diminishes from the work. And quite again, as I was saying, it enhances the work, but nonetheless, there is a certain aspect of, of of mental activity, which is involved in the analytical process, Mm -hmm. which is different than letting the music flow over you. So I wasn't by, by asking the question, it wasn't so much, are you listening to Pete Townsend's uh, whirling away on his, uh, uh, Stratocaster, and letting the sound flow over you uh, and doing something tribal and basic and simple and 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 social and all the rest of that, as opposed to this terribly abstract analytical Beethoven business. That's not quite what I was what I meant. What I meant was, as a musicologist, I could imagine that just like as a professor of literature, it would be hard for you to turn off your analytical faculties mm-hmm. that often, in the long term, would enable you to have greater appreciation, but sometimes you just want to listen to the music and let the music flow over you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, anyway, that's, that's where I was going with that. So, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily involve a different style of music or change. No, of music. I, I, I understand. And,
0: and, and yeah, there are, uh, you know, frankly times when I catch myself listening to, uh, something by Beethoven and, and realizing that I've sort of lost track of where I am in the piece. And, you know, maybe that's okay because, uh, you know, I'm I'm not enjoying it any less, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, and actually intriguingly, as, as I realized in, in thinking about the the, the uh, perceptual experience, and I write about this in Hearing Beethoven, some of the things that are really definitive about the Beethoven style, particularly uh, obsessive repetition and and uh, and strong emphatic rhythms, are, are things that you. Don't necessarily first listen to analytically. They're there things that that appeal at a, a very gut level, um, and uh, and therefore, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, were uh, relatively easy for someone like Barbara with very limited hearing to be able to to get some enjoyment out of it because uh, uh, you know it wasn't the complexity the music she was reacting to it was it's, it's down to earthness. Yeah.
1: So that's a great segue to what I've now alluded to several times, and then cut you off before you had the opportunity to respond to it, which is your particular interpretation on the greatness of Beethoven, the long standing nature of Beethoven, you've mentioned that he himself would have been shocked were we to resurrect him, that his music would still be played or still as popular. It's It seems to be extremely popular on a cross-cultural level, on a global level now. So what is your particular explanation for that? What is your particular interpretation of why that is? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I
0: have a, a work in progress, which is uh, has barely gotten off the ground yet. But uh, I have proposed writing a book titled Why Beethoven and Why Leonard Bernstein's Question Still Matters. Uh, The question, uh, as uh, some uh, fellow music geeks may recognize, alludes to a so-called imaginary conversation that uh, Leonard Bernstein wrote back in the late 1940s, I believe, uh, in which he interrogated uh, his, Fictional friend of his and his younger brother about what it is that uh, that makes Beethoven stand out and and you know why he is still revered as the greatest of all composers and he came up with uh, what uh, I, I think is is ultimately both uh, an intellectual and rather spiritual explanation uh, for that the, the sense that Beethoven actually uh, was not particularly good at the individual components of music. Now, I I even back when I read this in high school, I wanted to argue with Leonard Bernstein about this point because (laughs) I think Beethoven could write a good melody and had some very interesting harmonies and and had a way with the instruments and so forth. And and you know but Bernstein's point in 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 this article was to to tear down the, the all these individual things. You know, Beethoven uh, is not the greatest melodist who ever lived. His harmony is more limited than Debussy's. His orchestration isn't as good as rimsky korsakovs and so forth. So what what is it that really makes him stand out? Um, and uh, Bernstein said it was the gifted inevitability, the inexplicable uh, intuitive ability to know at any point in a piece of music what had to happen next to, to make the music sound like it just sort of fit into an, an ideal pattern which had existed already and uh, which Beethoven had the, the, uh, the, the good fortune to be able to, to uh, perceive and, uh, and set down on paper. You know, of course, in the the process, he's he's talking about this rather intellectually, uh, and he's talking about it analytically, and and he's talking about the sense that that someone who is listening to this music is really paying attention to that, is constantly asking that question, what happens next, you know, where are are we going from here, Uh, and so forth. Um, So I will say, uh, and... and, uh, you know again, I don't mean to deny that that's a real part of the experience of Beethoven's music uh, but uh, uh, I guess the the study that I've done has given me a much greater appreciation for the, the human aspects you know the, the frailty of Beethoven the, 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 the incompleteness, the, the, uh, the, the tentativeness of, of, uh, of so much of what he did. Uh, so I'm gonna plunge in here uh, and and say this uh, you know, uh, at, at some point, we get to the question of what does this music mean to me? Why, at the age of fifteen, was I so blown away by Beethoven's late quartets? Even though you know I could not really have articulated uh, what uh, uh, was behind them. So uh, I allude uh, in the book to uh, uh, the fact that I uh, and you know I can say this because the book is a semi memoir. I uh, have struggled at various points in my life with depression, but particularly in, uh, in my 20s. Uh, and uh, uh, I, at one point, I was in my early 30s, uh, and uh, I had been taking antidepressants, which are mainstream now, but uh, have... Uh, uh, you know, at that point, it was sort of on the the fringe of of medical science, and you know, I told people about this, and that they they didn't really know what it was or where I was coming from, but I I tried to be open and, and forthright about it. But anyway, uh, I, I I went through a major crisis in my life. Uh, my wife left me. I had been married before Barbara, and this was at the same point. Uh, My professional prospects uh, basically fell apart for the time being. I went through about six years of underemployment when I I could not find a a job teaching musicology. At that point, I only had a part-time job. Uh, I had no immediate future prospects, and I also couldn't afford the medications anymore. So I had to go through a very deliberate, painstaking, and often deeply uncomfortable process of weaning myself off uh, of these these uh, uh, these meds. Uh, and every time that happened, emotions would come up, uh, which had been part of the problem. Because this is one thing I, I came to understand. Depression isn't sadness. Uh, depression is the absence of emotion. It's the inability. And, and often that's because uh, people's emotional lives due to Circumstances from their childhood due to, you know, who knows what kinds of of various influences are so overwhelming uh, that uh, they really can't entirely face them. Now, my sense of Beethoven, I'll I'll get back to myself in a moment, uh, but he is someone who grows up in a family with an alcoholic father. his uh, mother dies relatively young, leaving him essentially responsible for the family. Plus, he has the burden of proving that he's the second Mozart and uh, and living up to, to all of these expectations that have been placed on him from a, a very early age. And... Uh, uh, this is an enormous burden to carry around. And, and obviously, if you're trying to do all those things, you're not really tending to your emotional life. And then his hearing begins to fail. An enormous crisis, again, not so much in terms of the creativity, but in terms of the self-confidence and the sense of who he was. And uh, so anyway, uh, the, the the reason I was able to do what I did, the reason I was able to wean myself off of antidepressants and gradually let myself experience depths of emotion, i mean, particularly negative emotions like like anger uh and and really profound grief the reason i was able to surface those emotions in myself and really process them uh was frankly because i knew that beethoven had been there before me i knew that from his music i I heard it and i understood that beethoven had had the same kind of crisis in his life uh and had surfaced the same kind of emotions Um, so you know i would i would if i needed to get out anger i would go to the piano and played the first movement of the Appassionata uh, or Tempest Sonata. Um, And, you know, it was not a polished performance, probably not a performance anybody would have wanted to listen to, but uh, I knew that I had connected with that point where uh, this does tie back to what you were talking about because emotion and intellect aren't meant to be separate but if if your emotions are so powerful that you don't understand them intellectually, then they control you, you know? So I had to bring up those emotions to where I understood them, to where I could put them within an articulatable structure that made sense of them, that that gave them cohesiveness uh, and so forth. And again, uh, that was what I found time and again that Beethoven, more than anybody else, uh, had done in his music. Um, And uh, I, I think uh you know i don't want to make too grandiose claims but i, I think that that that's what eta Hoffmann was talking about when he spoke about this music is agonizing it's it invokes terror fear uh and yet this is this wonderful transcendent experience which leaves you feeling like like uh like you've seen into realms that you didn't understand before uh so you know i hope that doesn't sound all too uh too trippy uh and and, uh, and out there because that, that is my sense of of, of of what keeps Beethoven's music alive and at some level he more powerfully addressed the sense of what it is to live a full complete uh, and intellectually rounded emotional life than any other composer has ever managed.
1: So why do you think that is? Is it because he suffered from depression. Is it because he, because of the difficulties that he went through, the profound difficulties that he went through? Is it uh, you mentioned his uh, obviously his beginnings and alcoholic father and so forth? Is it because of his innate character? Is it because of a combination of all of those things? And and. Uh, so there, there, there's that, and then within that context, there's the additional question, which is: I can see that he may, may be considered unique for all of these reasons, and, and probably a good deal more. Might there be other people who approach what Beethoven has done at some level? Could you, could you even imagine conjecturing, building some sort of a hierarchy or or, or whatever? Because what what you seem to be saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, is not just I, Robin, personally resonated with this individual. You are saying that, of course, but you're Mm -hmm. saying, it seems to me you're saying something more, which is that there is something about Beethoven which enables people like me and other people and people in other cultures and people in other places and other times to have this, this, a similar sort of experience of melding the, the, the emotional and the intellectual, the redemptive nature, the the mm-hmm. feeling of, of spiritual kinship, however one mm-hmm. wants to describe it. There is something particular about Beethoven which enables that, and I would like to get a handle on, as best I can, on what that is, or at least what you think that is.
0: Um, well, again, I, I I think it has to do with a lot with the unique circumstances of his life and the challenges that he faced. Um, and. And the fact uh, that those uh, are things onto which a lot of other people can can graft aspects of their own experience, and in trying to uh, develop parallels between Beethoven and my late wife, I, I think I was trying to draw out a, a, a case study uh, in that. Um, so, I mean, one could also say that Beethoven came along at the right time. Uh, that he came along when a lot of traditional societal structures were breaking down, and of course we often associate him and his music with with uh, with that, and and see him as a, a revolutionary, uh, and uh, you know, which again is true. But I also think that's somewhat superficial. It's not just that Beethoven was somebody who wanted to do do away with tradition and 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 so forth. There was someone who was very invested in finding ways of Keeping uh, older means of expression alive during this time of vast uh, social and societal change, um, and in order to do that, uh, it was was necessary to uh, uh, to transform the medium. Um, and uh, again, I think Beethoven—you know—if he had been born fifty years later, he would not have been there at the right time to do this. Uh, but uh, he is. Uh, an expression of his time. I, I mean, granted, I, I, as a historian, I would, would be undermining my my uh, uh, my own professional credibility if I suggested that Beethoven completely transcends the time in in uh, in which he lived and the time in which he was writing. He doesn't. Nobody does. But he uh, touched upon aspects of uh, of of the uh, this. Going to sound overreaching to say this, but the you know the, the meaning of human life and the, the nature of 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 what it means to be an individual in this evolving complex world in which we all still live, uh, and what it means to negotiate all these challenges and still be uh, uh, still balance your intellect and your emotions in in ways that that uh, that give you strength rather than undermining you, and that you know going back to those like Quartets when I was fifteen, I loved the music. Uh, I, I knew that other people uh, found it highly challenging. Uh, I've, there, there's a lot in the literature that suggests that Beethoven's late music uh, communicates despair, frustration, uh, you know, uh, a, a sense, maybe even a sense of futility. And I, I just want to say that I never heard any of that in that music. To me, it is the most profoundly hopeful, healthy, integrated music that has ever been written and you know i believe that uh, 50 years ago and i still believe it today
1: well that seems a great point to end on is there anything you'd like to add or stress or insert at this point that we haven't had a chance to talk about or that you'd like to say
0: um i i think we've pretty much covered most of what uh, um I, I would hope to bring out in this discussion. I hope I didn't spend too much time evading or talking around your questions.
1: Oh goodness! Uh, well, first of all, I'm not an inquisitor, uh, n- neither by disposition nor by profession. So you don't have to worry about uh, about any of that. And as I told you before, the idiom is to have a conversation. I was uh, I was deeply impressed by hearing Beethoven. That is to say, the book hearing. Be- I've also been. Deeply impressed by hearing Beethoven, but mm-hmm. I've been deeply impressed by your book, "Hearing Beethoven," um, which I found very thought-provoking and illuminating, and uh, and and, uh, and 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 moving, quite frankly. Um, and I've also been very impressed by your candor and your your honesty and your willingness to share what is obviously very difficult and very personal. And you did that in your book, you did that in our conversation. Uh, It's obviously part and parcel of who you are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. And Mm -hmm. it does enable people to, I think, form a connection with you, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. So I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for your insights. And thank you very much for uh, spending some time talking to me. Well, you're you're
0: welcome. I've enjoyed this, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say at this point in my career, if I can't do that now, <laughs> you know, having having earned tenure and published several
1: books, and and uh, uh, then what was the point? <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com while well, those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.